This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mins. Bail is refused. You're out of order! If it pleases the court. To adopt this affirmation, please say the words, I do. I do. Nothing further from this case. Given the serious nature of this offence, this case is dismissed. Welcome to The Weeds. This month, we look at two of the recent High Court decisions, BMW Australia Limited versus Brewster and Westpac Banking Corporation versus Lenthal, a decision with big implications for how class actions are funded and therefore serious implications for access to justice for people with claims against big business. Secondly, the decision of New South Wales versus Robinson 2019, in which the High Court considered whether it is lawful for police to arrest someone for questioning when they haven't yet decided to charge them with a criminal offence. Lastly, the Whigs discuss Rap Group 1-4 and their ongoing battle with the New South Wales Police. Can police and the courts stop them making their music? Recording from Como, ladies and gentlemen, we are episode five of The Whigs, and as always, we are joined by the Whig, Stephen Lawrence. It's good to be in your kitchen, Jim. Thank you very much. Felicity Graham. G'day, Jim. G'day. Good to be with you. Great to have you here, and Emmanuel Kokosharian. It's great to be here, Jim. It's so lovely to have The Whigs in my house. Um, and a little uh, sort of word of warning to listeners at home. I've got two small children, and I guarantee you one of them's trying to make an appearance now. At the, in, it, there he is, and uh, I'll have to deal with that periodically. But the show must go on. I don't want to interrupt the thought patterns of the wigs. Uh, so let's start, if we all agree, with our first topic, which is uh, thrown to Emmanuel Kirkusharian this week. I believe we're talking about class actions. Is that correct? We are, and specifically a recent High Court judgment that came down in relation to them or an aspect of them, um, I'll call it the BMW case, but it's actually BMW and Westpac. It was two cases um, that were run. One of them was run in the Supreme Court of New South Wales. The other one was run in the Federal Court. Uh, and quite interestingly, that those cases resulted in the first time that the full court of the Federal Court and the Court of Appeal of the Supreme Court sat together on bank. So six judges hearing these two disparate cases at the same time uh, about a particular issue, and that re- went to the High Court, as one would expect after a landmark case like that, and the High Court made a decision about it. Um, just really? to give... So they sat together but then promulgated different <coughs> orders, or the same orders, but well, they happened... the orders separate? <laughs> they happened to make the same decision, but ultimately it was two different judgments um, on two different causes of action. But the arguments were heard together. The arguments were heard together. Oh. Because um, the legislative regimes in the Federal Court and the New South Wales Supreme Court are effectively the same on this particular point. Mm. So, yeah. And I actually popped my head into to those proceedings for a little bit, um, and they were in the Federal Court room in Sydney, um, and they were all there dressed in their, you know, the, the Supreme Court judges in their more colourful robes and the Federal Court judges in their less colourful robes, and was a quite a quite an affair. Um, so just out of interest, how were yeah. they seated? Like, were they all sitting on the one level bench, or were they like one by one, or was it one supreme, one federal? <laughs> <laughs> it was three three, and I think from memory, it was as they would sit, so that the middle justice. Although maybe I'm wrong about that. Um, I can't remember whether the senior judges were in the middle mm. of the six, or whether they were sitting three three. Um, you know, these are the sorts of questions we delight in, of course. So I wonder um, who was in charge of, like, the water. 
and like ordering the associates around and the tip staffs around? Well, there's federal court room, <laughs> and I think uh, look, we don't want to say, but the federal court has slightly better facilities than the Supreme Court. Yeah, that's true. You know, you know. so um, anyway, they they seem to have managed that logistical nightmare. Um, and come to a judgment. And funnily enough, both courts came to the same view. Um, but we, I say that without having said what the issue is. So let me take a step back. In the 1990s, the um, law reform, the Australian Law Reform Commission set up uh, or suggested that there be set up a scheme that allowed class actions to occur. The ostensible justification for it was that... Small claims are economically unviable. Uh, by allowing class actions, you could allow people to bring these small claims and, in effect, improve access to justice. So um, they set up schemes to allow class actions in the federal court and then um, each of the states effectively set up the same-looking schemes. In doing that, in recognition of the fact that this was a new kind of world that we were entering into, um, the... Acts provided for there to be a effectively a power um, for the court to do whatever it wanted in the course of these proceedings. So the the terms of thirty three ZF of the Federal Court Act and the the Civil Procedure Act, the State Civil Procedure Act, is effectively in the same terms. Says that in any proceeding, including an appeal conducted under this part, the court may of its own motion or on application by a party or a group member, make any order the court thinks appropriate or necessary to ensure justice is done in the proceedings. So that's basically telling the court that, subject to whatever bounds that there are in statute, you can pretty much write your own book on how this thing's going to run. On how these class actions are going to run. Yeah, that's right. Um, And that power uh, was used in a way that was controversial in that most of these class actions, or maybe not most, but a lot of these class actions are funded by litigation funders. Um, They take a risk in providing the money to fund these actions. And if you're a person who is in a class but hasn't signed up to the deal that's being offered by these litigation funders, in effect you might get yourself a little free ride. You might get your issue litigated, and but not have to pay the price for it. The price being, in this circumstance, if you win, a cut of your winnings that go to the litigation funder. So what they did was get these things called common fund orders, which was basically, and I'm really paring it down to its sort of basic simple proposition here, but basically the court said early on in the piece, before the litigation had progressed very far, um... If you fall into a class uh, that's covered by this litigation and you don't opt out of being in that class, right, so you don't opt out, you may not know about it, if you don't opt out, then you will have to pay a cut of whatever your winnings are to the litigation funder. So they're binding third parties who are potentially unaware of the fact that they're being bound. And this, there was no power provided for this in the Act. This was based on that power to make an order or motion that the court thinks is appropriate. So the full court of the federal court and the court of appeal of the Supreme Court both came to the view that this was okay. 
um, and the High Court came to the view by a majority that it wasn't okay. Um, in essence, um, relying on the last part of the section, which says, make any order that the court thinks appropriate or necessary to ensure that justice is done, underline in the proceedings. And what the High Court said was, well, that's fine, but what you're actually talking about is funding the proceedings as the justification for these orders so that it is not in the proceedings that these orders are being made. They're being made, in effect, to make the proceedings occur or to allow the proceedings occur, and so they're not justified by that provision. Um, so this has actually had, or will have, it's, it's not clear, but one can imagine that this will have quite an effect on the world of class actions um, and litigation funding in particular. I mean... Litigation funding, at least to my mind, is a controversial proposition. It was a crime, or at least a tort, in, until the early 1990s in most Australian jurisdictions, effectively to fund litigation to get a profit. That was the crime of champity or the tort of champity. Um, that's gone away now. And litigation funders are making in excess of three times the amount of money that they're laying down in some circumstances. Um, and it's a really profitable, profitable model. Uh, so the High Court, in effect, has undermined that possibility. Um, sorry, has, has undermined that business model in some senses, although one gets the real feeling that there'll be a pushback and there'll be sort of steps taken to create what's quite a lucrative business. Um, in terms of the policy justification for litigation funding, on one view, what it is is sort of a privatisation of legal aid. Um, there's no doubt that there are small matters that, you know, ten, fifteen thousand $15,000 per head, say, that you might get as damages where it's spending half a million dollars to get that is not worth it. Uh, but whether or not we should be getting, we should have businesses set up whose sole purpose is to make money off litigation is, to my mind, a controversial proposition. What about uh, when you make reference to legal aid? Um, if it was, you know, a crowdfunding possibility for criminal proceedings out of charity or goodwill to sort of as a defence fund for someone, yeah. is that illegal in Australia? I don't think it would be illegal to give someone money to defend their case. If that's all we're talking about. Okay. Um, getting a return on that... I think would be illegal um, or may be illegal. It would certainly be unethical. You can't say in criminal matters, take contingency fees. So you, I, I'm a criminal barrister. I can't say to you... Look But there's limitations on that. And from memory, I think it's about a third or something like that. So you can bump up your fees by a third or something like that on a contingency basis. Or you can do no win, no fee, mm. which happens all the time. Mm. But what you cannot do is I win, I charge you my... I'm your solicitor. We do this thing. We win the civil matter. You pay the legal costs and I take a percentage cut. Right. So that is still not... The law now. My understanding is that Victoria, if it hasn't done it already, is considering changing the law so that in Victoria, at least in class actions and probably across the board, you will be able to, as a law firm, take a cut, so take a percentage of the winnings. Mm. Um, 
And what that kind of does is it, in a sense, gets rid of or at least reduces the role for litigation funders mm. because the law firms take the risk themselves and, and get incentivizes right. them to do it. Um, but there are kind of ethical issues that arise and it arises with litigation funders as well. So in England, for example, litigation funding is allowed, but you give your money and that's it, you're walled off. Oh. Here, the litigation funding agreements effectively allow the litigation funder to be involved in all of the mediations, in all of the decisions that are made and so on. And so there's pressure on them to effectively cut a deal as quick mm. as they can it's, it's, to make a profit. It's not a blind bet. You're not laying down your money, walking away and hoping for the result. Yeah. Is that the same as the American model? I think the American model is, for the most part, done by law firms who take their percentage cuts right. as with litigation funds. You guys continue. Many jurisdictions in America have limited costs awards against unsuccessful plaintiffs which I think changes the landscape significantly. Mm. So if you're a plaintiff here, you might, you've got to be having in the back of your mind, not only will I lose this, but I will be liable for $500,000, a million worth of costs. Mm. Um, it always, I mean, thinking of other possible solutions other than effectively privatising legal aid, which is the way that I look at this sort of thing, would be at least for listed entities to abolish their ability to recover costs unless the cases are, say, frivolous or vexatious, so that individuals can bring their actions without recourse to funding, without recourse to funders and so on, um, and sort of other changes like that that really improve access to justice without kind of saying litigation is this super expensive thing and it needs to be funded. Mm. Um, and litigation is this super expensive thing. I mean, you think about discovery and processes that go on in litigation involving large law firms. It's just money is just thrown away, mm. burnt up, often with junior lawyers spending their entire lives reading documents. And the um, costs are upfront and the reward is much delayed. Yeah, and speculative. Mm. Um, and so, I mean, one wonders... It just seems to me that probably it's too hard a task and no one's going to ever sit down and sort out the way to do this. I do know that in West Australia, the Chief Justice recently kind of said, said I want evidence in Chief Orally. I want less affidavits in court, which is this interesting idea that let's just get back to the old-fashioned way of having a hearing and not having these enormous document-dependent siloed well thought out things that result in the 1500 page judgments that the federal court is spitting out now regularly mm. um, it's an interesting idea the idea of access to justice in circumstances where you wind up with judgments that are unreadable by anybody I mean who's got the time to invest in reading a 1500 page mm. book um, it's funny, I sort of had a few reactions to this judgment. Like on one level, it's just a fairly dry exercise in statutory interpretation. Um, on another level, in terms of what is the meaning of that broad provision and what is the meaning of orders being made for the purpose of the administration of justice in the proceedings. And then there's this sort of broader concept, which is orders that actually you know, bring about the advent of the proceedings and that latter category is said to be outside the section. So on one level it's this dry exercise in interpretation but on another level 
it's sort of high policy in the sense that, you know, they're talking about whether this scheme should exist that um, allows people with fairly modest claims to basically get the support of a funder to bring claims that they couldn't otherwise bring. Um, and it's quite a, quite an interesting turning to the facts um, of the matter. So the uh, claim against uh, the Westpac Bank, um, w- which was one um, of the proceedings that were brought, was um, a contention by the plaintiffs that the financial advisors breached their statutory and fiduciary obligations to them by failing to advise them of equivalent or more uh, advantageous insurance policies offered by third-party insurers. So you're, you're, you're expecting to get financial advice, but you're really getting advice in the interest of the bank. Um, as to the extent um, of potential damages and the size of the group, uh, the High Court judgment says there may be in excess of 80,000 group members, each with a claim for, uh, for damages in the range of two to 15,000. No one can really bring a claim themselves if it's worth two to 15,000, but 80,000 people um, who potentially can combine certainly can. So there's an access to justice issue here that is absolutely huge. The High Court has struck it down, and it seems on the commentary about it that it's going to restrict that access to justice, certainly. You sort of look at it and you think, why is this incredibly important scheme that facilitates access to justice all being done through one very open-ended provision through which courts are making these very complex orders that, that include considerations about what is profitable, what percentages... Uh, should litigation funders be taking of damages? All of these questions that are really complex and financial. And, yeah, to me it really screams there should should already have been a legislative response to this. It probably shouldn't be a matter for courts using open-ended provisions to create these schemes. Um, you know, and certainly now that it's been struck down, it raises the question, will the, you know, the New South Wales Parliament and the Federal Parliament respond? Will the governments respond? And and enact statutory schemes that sort of properly balance um, all of the considerations. They might not understand, the, have the foresight to understand what, what, what the long-term effects of... I suspect they would understand it well because industry groups and so forth res- responded very positively to this judgment okay. and were supportive of these schemes effectively being struck down. Yeah, okay. And we've got Liberal governments at state and federal level who I suspect would be you know, able to be persuaded by such groups as to why there shouldn't be new schemes enacted that allow similar access to justice. I think they would understand it. There, there, there was at the... Um Court of Appeal and full federal court level, constitutional arguments made in this case, um, one of which brought into issue the question of whether or not what the court was doing was even exercising a judicial function, sort of a cable-ish argument or a cable argument, um, because it is really weird. Um, and a lot of these types of matters that are coming through, particularly in the federal court, and it's not just um, class actions, it's sort of generally across the board, class actions in particular involve these really complicated economic theory-based judgments being made by judges that from to the mind of a criminal lawyer who's sort of used to hard proof and hard evidence just don't stand muster. Like the opinion of some expert about what a price should be is an incredible concept to, well, you know, the experts say the price should have been a dollar higher, so 
you don't have to pay up $10 million. I mean, these, these are sorts of really, in my view, esoteric judgments. Um, and one wonders whether or not what the idea that courts shouldn't perhaps be engaging in this is something that quite ap- that appeals to me in yeah. some way. But then the then the question is, well, how else do you deal with it? And, and mm. I don't know what the there answer is. There has to be is. some scheme or answer because you're talking about a situation where if you're not wealthy enough to pass through the front door, get a seat at the table, then you can't get justice. So it doesn't matter you know, how wronged you have been, how unfair the circumstances are that you faced. The concept of justice doesn't extend to you unless you can get in the front door. So this idea of ensuring justice is achieved. Mm. I like the collectivism approach. It sounds great, but, you know, mm. obviously. Yeah, I mean, it crossed my mind as I was reading it whether as someone that doesn't work in you know that particular legal space, whether there's policy issues that I'm missing in terms of I wonder whether there's a view in the judiciary that there's a proliferation of cases, that cases are being resolved um, or settled or withdrawn on grounds that advance the interests of litigation funders that people are not comfortable with. I'm not sure. I just wonder whether there's some ill effect of these schemes that the judges are responding to? Well, there's definitely... The Federal Court has knocked back at least one or a couple of settlements on the basis that, look, the number's just too low and the litigation funders cutting a deal that they shouldn't. So go back and up the number mm. and come back. Um, there's also adverse effects. I think the High Court mentions this in its judgment on things like a director's insurance, insurance generally for corporations, um, and particularly with class actions involving shareholders where the shareholder sues the company for the company not telling the shareholder something that affects the share price. That, I mean, that just strikes me as a whole weird thing of itself, but that is causing perhaps arguably market distortions and conduct um, that otherwise wouldn't occur. I mean, the counter-argument is that it forces boards and management to be really strict on disclosure and comply and things like that. But I don't know, do you want everyone looking over their shoulder constantly or do you want them taking their jobs? Is uh, uh, is what where we're at, is where we are going to end up a situation where people are just unlikely to take risks because if you take the risk and you lose or you take the risk and you make a mistake, you're going to be sued by your own shareholders. Yeah, who's in charge here? That's right. <laughs> Welcome back to the Como Kitchen. Uh, this is my lovely house. Uh, we're doing episode five of the wigs here, and uh, my children are jumping in on this one. So apologies to the listeners at home. All right, let's see. Keep it down. So we are going to move on with topic number two, episode five, the last episode of the year. We're moving on to Felicity Graham, and the topic is being arrested without a warrant. Have I got that correct? Yeah, that's right. Fill us in. What's going on? In the recent case of Robinson, the High Court decided whether a police officer has a power to arrest a person without a warrant when, at the time of the arrest, that police officer hadn't formed the intention to charge the arrested person and was merely 
seeking to arrest the person for the purpose of asking them questions or to further their investigation through questioning of the suspected person. And the majority of the High Court, made up of Justices Bell, Gagler, Gordon and Edelman, decided, no, that's not a lawful arrest where a police officer doesn't intend to actually charge the person at the time of the arrest and where the person is being arrested for the purpose of questioning. And that's been the law for a long time, hasn't it? That you can only arrest with the intention of starting court proceedings. That's right. The way that this law in New South Wales has um, come into some controversy or there's been some movement around this is because of what Parliament did uh, in introducing a regime that permitted the police after lawfully arresting someone to then detain them for the purpose of investigation, including questioning. Is this like some sort of terrorism thing? That's why they introduced it, to extend the... We don't know. Is no. it from... Is it from... Is it... Okay. Back to you, please. Is it, is, is it based on the APEC? Remember they amended these sort of temporary laws? Nope, okay. Back to you, Flick. Let's do it. Let's get going. So Stephen's written a really good paper which sets out the history of this regime which allows the detention of suspects for investigation. We'll put it up on the Whigs cool. Facebook page. I can't believe you haven't read I it. I think yet. I'll have to now. <laughs> okay. And the regime is now in what we call Part 9 of the Law Enforcement Powers and Responsibilities Act, or we often refer to it in short as LEPRA. It had a predecessor in Part 10A of the Crimes Act, which was in similar terms, which, as I said, allowed for the detention after a lawful arrest of a person uh, for questioning and investigation up to a maximum of four hours Mm. or now six hours Mm. um, or in all the circumstances of the case what a reasonable period is for the investigation. So if it's a simple case, the maximum is going to be much less than Mm -hmm. four or six hours. Mm -hmm. And that power was an exceptional power because the law had long required arrested persons to be taken straight to court as soon as practicable following an arrest Mm -hmm. and their detention for the purpose of investigation or questioning was not permitted. It was not a lawful basis to extend the detention of a suspect. Mm. Though it was really, really common. Indeed. Yeah. And what the... So there was a series of High Court cases, including Williams in 87, which basically dealt with scenarios where in Williams it was Tasmanian, um, a fellow was arrested for burglary... He was then questioned, I think, for 24 hours or over a period of 24 hours in relation to heaps of burglaries, which he admitted to. Mm-hmm. Um, he was then charged for them all. He, his his counsel at trial objected to the admission of the interview on the basis that he should have been taken to court as soon as practicable. He shouldn't have been held in the police station and questioned for a day. And that went all the way to the High Court, and the High Court said that those admissions should have been excluded because his detention was unlawful Mm. uh, because the only purpose for which the police could deal with him was to take him to court as soon as practicable, Mm. not to extend that period in detention for a day um, in order to question. Uh, But 
and I think this is talked about in Williams, but was also talked about in the aftermath of Williams, that that legal principle was consistently ignored Mm. um, and police were routinely still extending detention for the purpose of questioning. And the law was different in England, where uh, the courts over there has said that it was permissible to extend detention for the purpose of questioning. Mm. So it's one of those sort of areas where, you know, the spirit and the principle of the law has run into the reality of investigating crime Mm. and the reality or the practicalities of investigating crime was sort of winning. And that sort of takes us back to what you were talking about in terms of the introduction of that predecessor regime. So now it's legislative, is that what you're saying, Flick? There's a legislative regime which permits the detention of a person after a lawful arrest for them to be subject to questioning or other investigation like forensic procedures, taking their DNA, Mm. things like that. Mm -hmm. And it's worth noting that the position in Australia is not the same as other places around the world. You've already mentioned the United Kingdom. In Canada, there's a Supreme Court case of uh, Philip Mann where the Supreme Court of Canada said, although there's no general power of detention for investigative purposes, police officers may detain an individual if there are reasonable grounds to suspect in all the circumstances that the individual is connected to a particular crime and the detention is reasonably necessary on an objective view of the circumstances and that includes in relation to investigation. But at a minimum in Canada, individuals who are detained for investigative purposes have to be told of the reason for their detention and the Supreme Court in Canada said, look, that process that uh, approach to arrest in terms of investigative detentions is not in contradiction with the rights under the Charter of Rights in Canada. They do, yeah. So coming back to the position in New South Wales and Robinson, in the nineteen nineties, uh in nineteen ninety actually, the New South Wales Law Reform Commission looked at this question and said there's a problem with the strict approach that the courts set out in terms of you cannot arrest someone for investigative proceed- for investigative purposes and you can't detain them for investigative purposes and they identified three problems the first was that there can be quite unfortunate results in terms of the practical application um, of the law that just depending on what time of day you happen to be arrested, you'll be treated very differently. So, for example, a person arrested at 10am on a Tuesday could expect to go before a court as soon as the police complete the necessary paperwork, which would take no more than an hour or so. That's going to be very different to someone who happens to be arrested at four o'clock in the afternoon because they won't be able to go to court until the next day. Mm. So so it's lock-up, that's overnight. That's right. And they could be subject to many hours of interrogation and other investigative procedures during that time just because they are in custody and will be in custody Mm. for that period of time. Anyway, again, if you're arrested on the weekend or on a public holiday, etc. Go wait till Monday. Mm. The second problem which the Law Reform Commission identified sort of flows from the first, which is that that incentivises police, especially in complex cases, to purposefully arrest people after hours to gain the advantage of having them in custody for a Mm. long period of time before they have to take them to court. And 
The Law Reform Commission said that there's nothing actually unlawful in this gimmickry, but it's not a sound or ethical basis on which to operate a system of criminal investigation. I query whether that's actually right in the sense that if you deliberately, as a police officer, arrest someone at a particular time of the day so as to avoid the operation of the law, which is to say that you can't detain someone for investigative purposes, then... Indeed, and it's an administrative decision, so it it would be hard to prove, although um, that's the same type of proof that you have to engage in to show that someone's been arrested for the purpose of investigation under the law now and that's I mean it's something a bit dissimilar that it, though isn't it to a lot of improper purpose cases where the very act itself is for the collateral purpose mm. whereas in that case it would just be the timing of the act mm. so I don't know but it's interesting yeah well in the um, course of inquiring into this issue uh, there was reference to a royal commission relating to a guy called Harry Blackburn, where the arresting officers had received and followed the advice of a senior Crown prosecutor to stage the arrest at, quote, 4pm or so, rather than the planned 6am, in order to give themselves more time for questioning and avoid the Williams issue. So (coughs) there are records sometimes that police keep about their planned approaches to arresting and investigating matters. Uh, and then the third problem that the Law Reform Commission identified was that the police will simply ignore the law, which mm. is mm. Stephen's point mm. with, that was observed by the court More that's just likely. been consistently ignored. <laughs> so the commission recommended that there should be legislation implemented to allow for the detention of persons. And that's then where we see this advent in New South Wales of this regime that after a lawful arrest, the purpose of which is to commence criminal proceedings against a person and to actually charge them with a crime because the police officer suspects them reasonably of having committed a crime, Mm. then uh, they can be detained for a reasonable period up to that maximum amount for the purpose of questioning, investigation and so on. So that's where we're at. Robinson, uh, in terms of what happened to him, he was the subject of an apprehended violence order. There was an allegation uh, from the protected person that gave rise to the police considering whether there had been a breach of that AVO. He then voluntarily attended a police station having heard that the police wished uh, to speak with him. Mm. And upon attending the police station, he was arrested. And the evidence in the case was at that time, the police officer did not intend to charge him with an offence, but was arresting him for the purpose of being able to ask him questions. I think there was a concession in evidence in the trial of the civil matter that at the time of arrest, the police officer was of the view that they did not have sufficient evidence to charge him. And what so happened was they offered him... The indeed, they offered him to participate in an interview. He did. And after that, they released him without charge. How long did they hold him for? I think hours, like a matter of hours only. And he yeah. took it... This went to the High Court. Yeah, so he brought a case for compensation in the District Court of New South Wales. Mm-hmm. He lost... Uh, 
he then appealed and the Court of Appeal uh, said, no, he should have won because it was an unlawful arrest. Mm. It was for this unlawful purpose of questioning him or and, and not for the lawful purpose of actually charging him. Right. And then the state appealed to the High Court because right, they right. wanted to say, no, we should have a yeah, we need this. power yeah. to yeah. arrest simply for the purpose of questioning someone. And there was a split decision in the High Court. So the majority of four are of the view that, no, for there to be a lawful arrest, there has to be the purpose of taking the person to court at the time of arrest. Yeah. And three of them in minority were of the contrary view, and they basically said, look, the law over the years has changed, not least this new regime for detention after arrest and also provisions for discontinuation of arrest and so forth. And they basically said, look, it's no longer the case that at, at that time of arrest where the only prerequisite um, or the only other prerequisite is reasonable suspicion, mm. um, it's no longer necessary that police have that intention of taking someone to court at the time of charge. Mm. And, you know, it's it's quite a complex issue. And I've sort of seen in my criminal practice, particularly at Aboriginal Legal Service, where you do a high or perhaps a higher proportion of objections to admissions and so forth. You can see the conceptual problem kind of play out in the courts because you have police officers who are very well aware of their power to detain after arrest and very well aware uh, that people tend to make admissions um, or often make admissions and very well aware that that can be the most probative evidence and so they want to do that they want to undertake those investigative procedures that lead to uh, the gathering of that highly probative evidence yet they're hamstrung in a sense as they see it by a law that says you must have the intention to charge as early as at the point of arrest where you won't have that highly probative evidence so there's sort of a tension there and I've done a number of wadis and I had this sort of run of successes at the ALS where I would cross-examine the officer in charge or the arresting officer on the wadir about the admissibility of the interview and I would simply say to them, was your purpose in arresting so that you could apply part nine and then interview them? And the officer in this run of successes would always say, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, then I would sit down and then at the end of the case I would hand up my authority um, of Williams or whatever mm-hmm. and say it's not a legitimate purpose of arrest, you have to exclude the interview. And, I mean, that was kind of, I don't know, to my mind, an interesting series of demonstrations about how conceptually difficult it is for a police officer to to be burdened by a very low test, which is just reasonable suspicion, yet at the same time actually have to have the intention of commencing proceedings in circumstances where it's the arrest itself that gives them the opportunity to actually investigate and potentially get the most probative material, which will determine whether they commence proceedings or not. So it's a very circular argument, and you can definitely see both sides of this argument, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I look at... So in Robinson, he did have... The trial judge at least found that the police officer had the reasonable grounds to suspect that the offence had been committed. And so the only issue, as I read it was whether or not the police officer was satisfied as to the reasonably the, the necessary reason for the arrest and the high court said well it has to be the purpose has to be to take them before uh, justice right uh, 
But if you look at section section 99 of LEPRA, um, there are basically two things that a police officer needs to have. The reasonable grounds to suspect that an offence has been committed or is being committed. So let's give that one a tick. And then B, 1B, says the police officer is satisfied that the arrest is reasonably necessary for any one or more of the following reasons. And some of them are obvious, like to stop them fleeing from the location, so someone who's committed the offence. Um, to preserve evidence, that's an interesting question. Um, because of the nature or seriousness of the offence. Um, to enable inquiries to be made to establish the person's identity. Now, what's not in that list is for the purposes of questioning somebody, right? So that's not there. But the nature of seriousness of the offence, for example, that's a pretty broad concept. Um, and also to stop people committing the offences, to stop harassment or interference with any other person. So in the context of an AVO, stopping harassment and interference. On a plain text reading of Section 99... There are two things that are needed, any one of those things and the reasonable grounds. And there's not a requirement that you have that intention of taking them to court expressly right. stated. Expressly stated there. Mm. And so that's been imputed. Now, as someone who's you know started off with the Aboriginal Legal Service and followed Section 99 as it has developed, I had always assumed that this round of amendments that left it at this was for the express purpose of getting rid of that requirement. No, I don't think so. That's the way there's I, always I'm, the obligation yeah. under the legislation to take the person before the court as soon as practicable. Point. It has to be for the purpose. Overlaying all those other reasons that can justify an arrest, which are really trying to give uh, some colour to what is an arrest as a last resort, what are the kind of factors that you can take into account in making that decision that an arrest is a last resort? Because arrest is not the only way to charge someone with criminal proceedings. In, in terms of the types of proportions we're talking about, in the local court, which is by far and away the forum where most criminal proceedings are dealt with, almost 70% of people are prosecuted by way of a future court attendance or sort of summons, so they're so not, not arrested, arrested ever, ever mm. uh, in order to commence the proceedings. And it's it's still in the high, you know, over 50% when you add all the other courts. Yeah, but the minority, I think, is saying you can have a lawful obligation that comes into being after the act of arrest, i.e. the obligation to take to court as soon as practicable, without that meaning that the purpose of the arrest has to be conditioned by that. I think that's their point, that the two things are not linked expressly. Yeah, so I, 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 as much as I agree with the high policy perspective that you shouldn't arrest other than taking someone before court, um, I think from a statutory interpretation point of view, you're hard-pressed to ignore the, the plain text reading of the section, but anyway, I mean, I'm, I'm grateful for the outcome. I think it's a principle of legality... <laughs> sort of issue, isn't it? In the sense that it's long been the case that that has to be the purpose of arrest and the legislature has fiddled around with the provisions of the arrest power, but they have not expressly come out and said, you do not have to have that intention. So the courts, I suppose, are are jealously guarding that long-standing right not to be arrested other than for the purpose of commencing proceedings and basically saying to the parliament, 
if you want to do away with it, you need to expressly do away with it because we're going to assume that you don't intend to do away with long-standing rights unless you do it expressly. Yeah. Uh, but you can see the pattern. I suspect we might not be having the same discussion in 10 years yeah. if the pattern of fiddling with the arrest powers continues. The other interesting thing, coming back to the questioning power, it occurred to me as, as we were talking about that, that there are so many categories of people now who can't be arrested for the purposes of questioning, but effectively can be required to answer questions on pain of criminal punishment if they don't. Um, there's provisions everywhere from the corporations law to the bankruptcy law to the, the, those people who investigate serious crimes, the crime commissions in traffic law, right? Um, so in terms of not only the right to silence being eroded, but the right to actually just not present yourself. I mean, it's an arrest in all but name. They're not physically dragging you to where you're answering questions. But if you don't go, then you're committing a criminal offence. Um, and so it's, I, I don't know. It's just interesting to kind of ponder the difference between that and how far we've gone down that line and this kind of jealous guarding of the arrest power in that way. Um, there's an incongruity there to my mind. I mean, I mean, like a lot of things uh, that we've talked about in this podcast um, over the year, it raises police training. You know, like I've done so many of these ideas about admissions of the admissibility of admissions, the lawfulness of the exercise of police powers. And it's just routine that you unearth in the course of those proceedings that the arresting officer has little to no understanding of the scope of their powers. And I suppose this sort of issue demonstrates that that is not sort of necessarily an indictment of their diligence or intelligence um, or competence because there's all of these conflicting sort of concepts and principles here that are really, really complicated and the High Court is split 4-3 over them because, you know, the minority doesn't think it makes a lot of sense. And yet police are expected to be out there administering these powers and it's extremely difficult. So I just wonder whether enough attention is is being spent at the Golden Police Academy on what are these very fundamental uh, powers and what are the preconditions to them. Because it's it's almost the exception when you when you closely examine them to come across a police officer who has a proper understanding of them. Yeah. And often the, the practical measures that are taken are completely opposite to what's set out in the police handbook. And you find that across the board in police conduct, that what they say they ought to do and what they are in fact doing are very, very different. Mm. Mm. Or the yeah. number of police officers that disavow even knowing about the police handbook. Yeah. It's extraordinary. Yeah, it's crazy. Is there... Uh, what solves this? A Bill of Rights? I think this is you know, probably a policy sort of question. I mean, it has human rights dimensions in the sense that people's right to liberty is interfered with and that can't occur arbitrarily. Uh, but in terms of whether international human rights would guarantee a right not to be arrested for questioning as opposed to, as opposed to, be, as opposed to being arrested for the purpose of taking someone to court, I, no, I don't think so because... It's very common in the civil law systems in the European countries to have um, arrest and detention for questioning and people to be held in custody for 24 hours, perhaps as a minimum period for the purpose of questioning by the police 
rather than by the prosecutor and so forth. So I don't think international human rights is engaged on a fundamental level here, but we in our tradition have jealously guarded against arrest for questioning. Yeah. It's it's a real principle of of our common law system. Right. The reason I bring it up is because there's this great phenomena on um, YouTube and Facebook Watch, uh, which, which is mainly American-based. In fact, it's 100% American-based. But you'll get the odd New South Wales example here and there where people are filming their interactions with the police and, um, and they're challenging the police. This is the American police on um, knowledge of the law. And quite often they're winning these quarrels. And it's, it's hilarious. But citizens of New South Wales have seen these videos and have tried to apply the same principles in their interactions with the police in New South Wales to vastly different results. And uh, they just think it's funny. We might post a few links, I think, maybe, because it's this, this a rabbit hole. Once you watch one, you're watching 50 within the next 30 minutes. It's yeah, some of them are hilarious, and they really well demonstrate the power relationships that normally exist between police and the citizenry, because often when, you know, the occasional one where the citizen is well-informed and correct and able to articulate themselves clearly and state their position, you see some of the police officers being very affronted by it. <laughs> and you can tell that it is not the character of the their usual interaction when they're exercising their powers. Definitely, definitely. <laughs> but uh, if you do get the chance, I urge you to check out the New South Wales examples too because they are um, equally as ridiculous um, uh, from both sides, I would gladly admit. Um, thank you very much, Wiggs. We're going to take a short break. Hey, in the beginning, it was only me and the gang. True. Introduced this country to drilling, all of a sudden they all wanna bang. All of a sudden they all wanna rap, steal, sing and loot. All of a sudden they all wanna trap, drill, ching and shoot. Trap, drill, ching and shoot. They sent my young G home same night. Stephen, you're next up on the topic list. There's been an issue with one for the rap group facing a multitude of charges, if I'm not correct. Uh, can you please enlighten us? What's the latest with rap music in New South Wales? We're dying to know. Yeah, so the biggest thing in rap music in 2019 uh, was 1-4, which is a Mount Druitt group. Okay. Um, I, of course, was completely unaware that that was happening. You don't know 1-4? <laughs> I didn't know 1-4 until someone sent me a link to a background briefing story that dealt with the legal issues. They have 633,647 monthly listeners on Spotify. Oh yeah, and one of their film clips or music videos, I think it was their first one, The Message, I think it's had 23 million views or something like that on YouTube. They're absolutely huge. Leave these paint mistakes, do it. The genre of rap is uh, called drill. Drill. Drill, which is a genre of rap that apparently is big in the UK and the USA and is characterised by uh, hyper-violent lyrics um, on occasion and a gritty depiction of the social reality of life in housing estates and so okay. forth. Um, and you hear references in their songs to drill and drilling. Um, yeah, and if people Google uh, 1-4 rap, they'll find their music videos and there's three or four that have been absolutely huge smash hits. Wow. Good and, yeah, look, like um, American gangster rap, there's 
uh, there's a nexus uh, between uh, music and crime um, um, or membership of rap groups and apparent membership um, of criminal gangs on occasion. And probably the the extent of that link is highly contentious. And I think the police are certainly of the view that uh, 1-4 is, in essence, a criminal organisation. Mm-hmm. And it's said, and I think certainly there's been evidence in court cases of this, that there is a broader criminal gang that also, guys, also goes by the name of 1-4. Oh, OK. And is said to come out of the Mount Druitt area and is said to have been involved in turf wars with a number of other gangs out of Western Sydney, particularly a group called Inner West, which I think is said to emanate from the inner part of the western suburbs, oh, maybe Ashfield. Yeah, District 21, I think, is another one. Um, and when you sort of read about this, you see that um, it's a bit amorphous and ever-changing and the names seem to vary, and I think the memberships no doubt vary. But there is a highly popular rap group called Wumfor. Right. That's certainly a, a fact. They have been a worldwide sensation. Yeah. They have... Tried to do a national tour, right? And there was plans in 2019 for this four-member group to undertake a national tour and then a New Zealand tour. Mm-hmm. And they um, had venues booked; they'd sold lots of tickets in advance, and it was highly anticipated to be a successful tour. Mm. Uh, as I've also said, there is a criminal gang also known by the name One Four that has been uh, involved uh, certainly in a range of criminal activities. At least two of the members of the rap group have been imprisoned uh, this year for criminal offences and two of them um, are serving terms of imprisonment. Uh, But prior to the imposition of those terms of imprisonment, uh, this national tour was being planned um, and booked. And New South Wales Police took a number of steps to stop that tour And they did a range of things, I think firstly including uh, getting in contact uh, with venues who were were booked for the tour and giving them uh, security briefings and advice on what sort of amounts of security guards they would need and what sort of um, other other measures they would have to take to ensure the safety um, of patrons. How many police officers would be required? How many police officers would be required? how much they would have to pay, and venue after venue cancelled one for. Wow, okay. So they've scared them in the... They've scared the venues, and you can imagine how a venue would react if the New South Wales Police Delegation arrives and says, our advice to you is that serious offences of violence will occur or are likely to occur if you host this group. Here's what we think you reasonably have to do uh, to guard against that. And the venue, in in the face of that sort of advice, whether it's prohibitive in a financial sense or not, mm-hmm. you can imagine would not be that keen to host. Yeah. A, a, to and host by the, the way, your license might be in jeopardy yeah. because you had some violent episode that occurred last year right. there, and if we're, we're something not else erupts, we're not saying don't do it. You know, no, uh, well, New South Wales Police don't have the power to basically stop these things going sure. ahead, except if they have specific powers that I'll come to. But the general proposition, if people want to hold a concert, they can hold a concert, yeah. uh, but large commercial venues aren't likely to host them if they're told by the police that certain things might happen. Mm. There's been other more specific legal measures taken. Um, as I've said, there's a nexus here between rap music um, and criminal activity. Mm. 
um, and one for is made up of Pacific Islanders from the Mount Druitt area. Okay. And um, if you watch their music videos, you'll see that in some of them uh, there's hundreds of young guys that are taking part in the video, obviously um, at least supporters of the group, mm-hmm. many um, are members in some sense, I think, of 1-4. Mm-hmm. Um, but, well, many are members of 1-4, the alleged criminal associate, criminal gang? or no, not a criminal gang, it's a gang. Certainly they are people that are helping the rap group uh, to produce its videos and make its music. Right. And this drill genre seems to include a high degree of crowd participation. So you okay. sort of see lots of people rapping and singing. Uh, the core members of the group are four, mm-hmm. uh, but a much bigger group of people, I think in some sense, are members of one four. So when you listen to their music, it's uh, they rap about their lives yeah. um, in Western Sydney and what's going on. Uh, they rap about violence that is occurring in their community. And there's also specific lyrics that the New South Wales police say are references to crimes that have already occurred. Oh, okay. That's interesting. And in particular, there was a murder um, in inner Western Sydney that is said to be discussed in one of the one four lyrics. So the New South Wales police certainly are taking the view that this is not just a depiction of a social reality. This is not just young Islander guys rapping about their lives and about the social issues facing them in their community. This rather, in the view of the police, is um, the taunting of other gangs through rap music, uh, the glorification of violence through rap music. And they think, or they certainly have the view, that if venues host these guys, that there will be gang-related violence at those venues because the music itself is a way of continuing the gang-related rivalry and crime. Yeah, so the lyric is, 21 what, one got knocked, ha, I guess that makes them 20. Talking about the District 21 gang where one of the members was murdered. Oh, so they don't give details about the crime. They don't admit that, hey, it was one of us who did it. They're saying, ha-ha, you're one short. Yeah, like it's said to be a lyric that is referring specifically to a murder that occurred. Yeah, but it's an antagonising lyric. There's no there's no admission yep. of guilt in that lyric. No. My district has two must drillers. Like who wants her? Like who wants war with Sydney's drillers? They talk that talk on gas, but them boys they ain't got no triggers. They act like they in trenches, but them boys ain't got no diggers. Like what the difference? Run through houses, kick down doors like Raptor Squad. They just talk fast, they drink cameras on. That's where these actors from. They don't front line, they feel lines, they pussies. But I just don't mind. They rewind and push it. Push it, push it, push it. So right now we're going to hear from Sophie Toomey. She's a solicitor acting for one of the alleged members of One Four. So I act for a young man, 20 years old, who is, I'll just call him Jacob, works full-time, lives with his family, young brothers and sisters and parents in Mount Druitt, and it is alleged that Jacob is involved with a group or a gang as asserted by the police called the One Four. And it is also asserted by the police that the One Four are at war, essentially with a gang called the Inner West. Jacob's got a bail condition on his current affray matter that he not associate with 
15 people who are alleged to be members of the 1-4 gang. Jacob says that he plays music with these guys and that they rehearse together and that they're friends of his and have been for many years. I applied to the local court for a removal of the non-association condition because Jacob wants, quite understandably, to be able to rehearse and play music with the people with whom he's in a band. And the New South Wales Police brought two police witnesses to court as well as six pieces of footage of riots, affrays and assaults that are alleged to or have been proven to involve the 1-4 and the Inner West. Thing is, though, that Jacob has never been involved in any of these incidents. He has no gang-related matters on his record. There's no assertion that Jacob's ever incited violence, uh, assisted in organising violence, been involved in direct violence of a gang-related nature, and notwithstanding that, and notwithstanding Jacob giving sworn evidence that he plays music with these guys and that he was not involved in any of these event offences, uh, the local court magistrate refused to allow Jacob to associate. See, I still remember Aye. that day Freddie copped that whack. Free. They took that 15 boys to court and all of us got knocked back. Yeah, yeah back in the days when Shanks... I mean, we've had music like that on the radio in Australia or at least available in Australia for years, right? You'd looked at anything that Tupac did before he was shot. Um, all of that is the same sort of music and it's just played. Uh, the difference is that this seems to be about subject matter that is local. Right. But the interesting thing about the, the, the violence at the venues is that the day before or the day of the ARIA Awards, one of the singers was invited to the ARIAs. Now, one singer going to the Arias isn't going to cause violence. There's not going to be a sudden breakout of violence at the casino because one guy goes. Yeah. But they use the specific power they have in the Casino Control Act to stop him from going. Oh, they hosted at the casino. Yeah, the right. Arias were at the casino. Oh, and they okay. stopped this guy from going. And what it is is a concerted effort to shut down the band. Okay. Now, I don't know. It's sort of... Well, Seems to me that's police state territory. It sh- it sounds really weird, right. but also just you know practic- practically like whenever you try to shut something down in popular culture, you actually end up ha- causing the opposite to occur, uh, and they get spoken about on podcasts like this one. Well, except that if you stop them from being able to sing at any venue, and you jail them by arresting them for crimes they may or may not have committed, and then. You take certain positions on their bail and you stop them from going on and you go and you get orders to stop them associating or serious crime orders and things like that. The reality is that today there is such a... There are so many powers available to the police to stop association, to stop contact, to criminalise otherwise normal behaviours that if the police want to, they can shut people down like Mm. this. Yeah, so some of the powers that have been used against one four um, or alleged members of it include the non-association provisions in the Bail Act, um, and prior to two members of one four being imprisoned this year for an offence of violence in a pub in Western Sydney, which was depicted um, on closed circuit television, and certainly was a nasty um, attack that they clearly 
uh, were guilty of, they had been on non-association provisions under bail laws um, in respect of each other. And some of their uh, music videos depict uh, people uh, with their faces covered. Some of the ops gone missing. Like, why do you think our faces are hidden? The gang's on strict conditions. We come through militant, whole crew diligent, ready to back our district. They hate our... Their interactions with the criminal justice system became part of the art, which I suppose raises this whole question about, um, as Jim said, can you in any way meaningfully, uh, from the police point of view limit this sort of art and this sort of music particularly in the digital era mm-hmm. where you can use your non-association provisions you can put pressure on venues and so forth but it'll probably have the contrary effect i would have thought it'll probably make their music more popular make people want to listen to their music more and spread their message i would have thought wide and far there's also a real problem in my mind about policing this type of creative work because we don't assume that when an author writes a novel in the first person that the author is the character and has all the thoughts and inclinations violent tendencies or whatever of the character and a big part of any creative exploit including music rap music is this ability or uh, this approach where you take on a persona to reflect the experience of people in the world and you I'm just really troubled by the way that this is being policed and we see it in other more extreme cases, there's a case in London where a drill rap group is subject of a court order that bans them from making music without police permission. They literally need the police permission in relation to the lyrics and so on that they want to include in their music. Yeah. That's the group called 1011. How, how do you, you can't police brain activity. Like well, it's, it's, entering into the realm of, it's entering into the realm of thought policing, isn't it? Totally. I mean, there's no difference in a sense between a non-association order that prevents members of a rap group uh, from associating and banning particular songs or lyrics in the sense that if it's a group like One Four, then they can't make their music as One Four unless they associate with each other. Yeah. Any, so any, free speech, any free speech argument is fundamentally a thought crime argument. Right. If you can't speak it... You can't think it. There's, yeah. there's really no distinction there. I mean, unless you've got to think about sitting at home and thinking about words in your head and having that freedom, but that's no freedom at all. No. And what saddens me the most about this is that these guys are from a pretty tough place. Mm-hmm. They're, break, they're in the moment of breaking out. They're about to have national concerts, international element, international recognition coming from that, mm. and they're shut down. Yeah. And it's like, well, hang on a second... Even if they are coming from somewhere bad, maybe that's going to inject some positivity into the space, you know? Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, Ice-T plays a cop on TV, right? That's, yeah. that's <laughs> They met um, at a thing called the Street University, which is run by the Ted Noss Charity Foundation for disadvantaged kids in Western Sydney, kids who've been in trouble with the law. They met in the context of 
trying to provide some more pro-social outlets for kids, making music, youth activities and so on. That's where they met and started making their music together. And to then try to cut down their chances of having a an outlet having a a viable work opportunity to make money and so on that's I totally not, agree completely agree it's it, ridiculous it's, yeah, it seems it's, like at at the very least overreach in the sense that i can imagine legitimately how the police in sydney might form the view that if one four performs at a sydney venue that there will be gang rivals there who will come in order to respond uh, to the music and lyrics that they see as provocative. Yeah. But the evidence in on right. this issue suggests that the New South Wales police have gone interstate Crazy. and leaned on venues in South Australia, Melbourne as and so forth to not South host Australia them. Is going to care about some turf war in Western Sydney. Exactly. This is a sort of milieu of Pacific Islander youth in Western Sydney. I don't really see it translating to interstate. And so you, we really do seem to be in the territory of the New South Wales police not wanting per se just to crack down on criminal activity uh, but wanting to crack down on the music itself um, on the basis that the music itself is propagating crime. And, you know, this is 1980s USA gangster rap kind of territory where you just have to on some level concede, don't you, that certain social realities are brutal and art is going to reflect those social realities and should and will have to reflect those realities and any ham-fisted attempt uh, to tread on the art is going to be at least counterproductive. Mm. There's an absurd interview with a senior sergeant from Western Sydney online talking about 1-4 and he seems to be leading the charge and he's quoted online saying, why can't they just sing about how beautiful their girlfriend is why can't they just sing about how tough their life is? Why do they have to rap about violence and gangs and crime? Who said this? Um, a senior sergeant in Western Sydney who's online talking about 1-4, who seems to be leading the charge against them. <laughs> and, you know, it's naive at best, but reflects a heavy-handed approach where police really... Have think you guys seen they... Footloose? This, yeah, is the, yeah. this is the plot of Footloose. The town where you couldn't dance. That's taking place yeah. in Western Sydney right now. Yeah. It's ridiculous. There's an interesting 2017 paper by a couple of music professors and a criminologist, and they write in that paper, there is one musical genre that seems almost wholly devoted to violence, Dozens of the most popular works in this genre graphically depict murders. Male protagonists boast about their physical and sexual prowess, frequently challenging other males to battle for no other reason than sheer pride, and on it goes. That genre, of course, is opera. (laughs) (laughs) And then they go on, opera lovers understand that violent and sexual themes are conventions within the genre, and it would be bizarre to take them as literal threats or descriptions. I, I just think this is really venturing into dangerous territory. Obviously, the police have a job to do in policing genuinely criminal conduct and to take approaches in relation to how to deal with gang activity and so on, but it seems this is, as you say, Steve, overreach. I mean, I think it raises race too, doesn't it? I mean, it's interesting to think about opera in terms of what's acceptable to the majority um, in a society in terms of depictions of violence. It's interesting to think about the role of police in protecting us because they do have a role in protecting us 
And one of the things that it seems to me is the most important part of that role is protecting our fundamental rights. For example, the ability to speak and the ability to live in a world where we can enjoy art and share it. Um, and protecting that right seems to me to be far more important than protecting the right not to be have a fight somewhere. For some reason, violence trumps all and we're going to stop that violence, which seems to me a bit intellectually dishonest at the end of the day. Retaliation is a must. I know my beef is so bust. We took numerous trips around there, but lad, that's something I can't discuss. I don't want to end up in... Once again, solicitor Sophie Toomey. The biggest issue that I could see was that this is association for a lawful purpose, i.e. making music. The local court magistrate made a finding that there was a risk to the community that arose out of these people making music together because the music itself was music that had lyrics about violence and allegedly lyrics that uh, outlined a tally of success in these fights between these two gangs. There was no evidence of that, though. And uh, she made a finding that there was a risk to the community in these people making music together and um, essentially made a finding that freedom of speech was trumped by the risk to the community. So that's the situation. Wow, interesting. So it's not just this argument that the making of the music is just a guise to hang out together and do criminal activity. The court's actually saying that the making of the music itself is the danger. They're saying that's part of the danger. They're saying that the songs that these guys are making together talk about a scoreboard, essentially. So perhaps who's won one fight and it's essentially a way of them publicising that they're keeping score in these gang wars that they're having. Mm. And the magistrate claimed that that itself created a risk to the community. So he went to the plate not guilty for that matter in the local court uh, and we have lodged an appeal against the refusal to bury bail, um, i.e. remove a non-association condition uh, and that's to be heard in the Supreme Court. And we're hoping a Supreme Court judge can see the massive infringement on this guy's civil liberties. That is, his freedom to associate and, and freedom to speak. And he's still out talking tough. They don't know about taking risks. Them big lies they made for this. We invest in shanks and shivs. And if there's beef, we take in trips. I can't call them ops like we beefing flops. I've got friends looking at ten. Throughout the 1-4 discussion, you have heard samples from the following songs. The Message, In the Beginning and Spot the Difference. These songs in full can be found on the 1-4 YouTube channel. Okay, thank you, Wigs. I appreciate you being in my home. In my house, my home. Uh, a lot of crazy stuff's going on. The NBN bloke just rang the doorbell. So this really is suburban Wigs town. So fun things uh, going into the new year. Stephen, what are we doing? What's the fun thing? Mate, I have about three weeks off uh, from work. Oh, I've nice. got to do a few advice I've got left over, but that's okay. Great. Um, yeah, my partner and my son are going away Yay. for three weeks, so I'll awesome. be... At home on my own, yep. sort of doing a few things and relaxing. I don't think you'll fit through there, Lucia. My kids are now invading the show. 
which is fine. Yep. That sounds great. Thanks, mate. Enjoy. <laughs> As you can see, I'm so in, involved in this. I never have a fun thing. What's Felicity my fun Graham. thing? You had an idea about my fun thing. I want to start it again. No, no, mate. That's it. That's your dog. All right, now hit me if, you, if it comes to you in the next 10 seconds. What was your idea? Damien. Yeah. Just talk about hanging out with Damien. Oh, but he's going away, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, I was going to go diving. That's been cancelled. Oh, my God. Um, oh, no, okay. I know, I know, I know. Hit me. Yeah. What is it? Yeah, so my fun thing is I'm going to letterbox a calendar with my with my name and face on it to all the residents of East Ward in the Dubbo local government. Yay. I'm going to do that for the first two weeks of January so and hopefully lose about 10 kilograms doing it. Oh, good, good. That'd be lovely. Felicity Graham, what's your fun thing going into the new year? When our episode drops in the new year, Jim, I will be overseas. Wow. How yeah. exciting. It's going to be great. Holiday? Or Holiday. I'm going to visit my two younger sisters who live in the UK awesome. and then visiting a friend in Milan. Wow. Yeah. It's how going to be great. We're going to Port Douglas. That sounds excellent so too. We'll, we'll get to us to see. We'll have to wait our turn. Emmanuel Kokosherian, what's your fun thing? Go to Perth. Wow. Everyone's going away. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. I'm just waiting for the Fremantle doctor in the clear air to get out of this bloody smoke, which Absolutely. is driving me crazy. Yeah. Uh, but in Perth until the 6th of January, wow. so yeah. that'll be really nice. Uh, no, um, Claremont area and then going down to Margaret River for New Year's Eve, which would be really nice. Yeah. I love Perth. It's awesome. You guys don't need to ask me. That's fine. I'll be, I'll be yeah, well, already, Lucy oh, has well. already spoken yeah, for you. Yeah, that's right. She's already spoken. Okay, all right. We're going to go away. We're going to take a little trip. Should be a little fun. Um, just going to relax and we're not going to look at the computer screen except to cut this episode. So thank Which you will be everyone. a big job. Yes, <laughs> yes. It's going to be a lot of fun. Thank you for leaving. He's got to cut the NBN bloke out. Um, thanks to the Wigs for coming all the way to Como to record this one. It was my fault. Uh, uh, my wife works on Saturdays, and so thank you for being so accommodating with the kids. I want to thank Jack Mins and Lucia Mins for being the best because they kept it down the whole episode. Thank you, guys. And we'll see you all in 2020. Have a good one. Thanks for listening. Please like the Wigs on Facebook at... The Wigs Podcast. Don't forget to rate and review on iTunes. This podcast was brought to you by Minimal Productions, produced by Jim Mintz.